Isabel came to me a few months ago now and uh, kind of pitched this idea, um, the idea that editors in their careers move between documentary and drama and we shouldn't see them as silos. And I, I thought it was a really interesting idea. We have some fantastic talent on the stage. It's a great stage. Just some housekeeping. Our Twitter feed is post-NY. So if you want to take photographs, tweet, <laughs> mention this, um, tag everyone here, then please uh, feel free. Um, that's all I have to say, really. Uh, Isabel, I'll hand over to you. There are refreshments. Please join us afterwards uh, out in the lobby. Hand over to Isabel. Thank you very yeah, much. Yeah, and um, Clark, if you want to say anything about PostWorks while we're here. Uh, I just wanted to welcome all of you. Uh, I'm Clark Henderson with Technicolor PostWorks. Uh, as you know, we do uh, DIs, dailies, uh, sound, all sorts of things here, editing rooms. Uh, enjoy the night. Thank you. All right. I'm going to start at the at the far end, um, and I'm assuming we need to talk into these microphones in order to get recorded for the podcast. So I'm going to share mine with Alan, and you guys can share down the lane, down there. But I'll start at the far end, and I'll kind of let you guys introduce yourself a little bit more and just give us a context of your background and how um, you came into editing and how you found your way um, from one side to the other. But I'll start with Sam, Sam Pollard. Um, you, I'll just briefly mention, um, you have talked about getting your start in filmmaking, working with Henry Hampton as a producer and a writer on the um, American Civil Rights series, Eyes on the Prize. And you've since produced, directed, and edited several feature films across both genres, documentary and dramatic. And how did that initial experience in documentaries set you up for your work later as an editor in docs and dramatic? Was it a series of introductions, conversations? How did that? How did that? Um, how did you cross that bridge? Well, I um, I started in editing back in 1972. I had been in a film and television workshop at WNET Channel 13, and after that workshop, I got a job as an apprentice editor on a low-budget feature film. And the editor was a gentleman named Victor Konevsky, uh, who became my mentor and trained me. I was his assistant for like three years, and. Um, he really showed me the ropes. He taught me how to edit. You know, he would he would always a couple of days a week have me sit behind him at the Steenbeck, and he would explain to me and articulate to me all of his reasons for his editing. And working with him, I had always grown up loving feature films. I didn't know much about documentaries, but working with him, he was a he was not only a feature editor, but he also cut lots of documentaries. So he really, really sort of inspired me. I fell in love with documentaries working with him as his assistant, and then I became an editor, a young editor. And uh, you know, you know, like a lot of us, I worked on a lot of children's shows, children's television workshop, low budget feature films. So I went back and forth in the '80s, cutting low budget features and cutting documentaries. And then, as you said, in '88, '87, I got an opportunity to produce for the first time for Henry Hampton Eyes on the Prize, which was a real eye opener because. Like a lot of editors, when I used to get footage, I used to complain all the time about the producers and the directors that they didn't know what they were doing. And then I realized when you're out there producing, it's hard. Yeah. It's very difficult. So now you, then, then you get your own taste yeah. of that. Yeah. And, and then, you know, after that, I started working for Spike over the last 20 years on about seven films and both features and documentaries because I like going back and forth between the two. You know, uh, to me, the challenge of the documentary informs the feature work and the feature work informs my documentary work. Well, just because you said that, and that's the theme of the show, um, talk a little bit more about what one lends to the other for you. 
Well, with the documentary, as we all know, all those who are editors here, there's no script. There's no actors. The challenge that we have is to put this material together, try to make it dramatic, give it a story arc. And to me, that's, I always, people always ask me the question, whether I prefer features or docs? And I always say I prefer docs, because to me, it's a challenge. You, either, you can either soar or you can fail, but you, you, there's no in-between. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, for me, when I, when I would go to the feature films, like when I would work with Spike on a film like Jungle Fever or Mo Better Blues, I would feel like my documentary chops, because he would shoot a lot of stuff sometimes with improvisational with actors and stuff. He would shoot a lot of footage. And I never felt, I was never intimidated by it. You know, to me, it was like cutting the doc, just finding the best elements and making that story work. You know, so I like that. I like that challenge. And then I go back to the documentaries and it would inform my sense of storytelling, you know. Because to me, we're filmmakers and we're about storytelling. That's what that's our job, to mm -hmm. tell stories. Mm -hmm. And so, I'm, I mean, one thing that was really valuable in what you just said is coming from documentaries, it may be, um, it may be in your best interest if you're interested in getting into fictional to, f to recognize directors who do work with a lot of improvisation or do have a more kind of looser style that aren't s completely, completely tightly bound to a script that would lend itself to someone who has that kind of background in documentaries. I mean, it sounds like that was what worked specifically for you. Well, I, you know, what worked for me too is that, you know, I'm working with filmmakers who, who like documentaries, who also like features. Spike likes to make docs, he likes to make features, he likes to tell stories. And I think, you know, that, to me, we, you shouldn't narrow it down. Like, you shouldn't get locked into a box. I only cut documentaries. I only cut features. I only cut commercials. I mean, our job as editors, you know, is to figure out and challenge ourselves to approach and attack any kind of material to the best of our ability, you know? I mean, when you go back, you look at when you get to Craig, you know, one of the films, when I remember watching Reds, and I thought that one of the phenomenal things about Reds was that interweaving of those interviews with those people and the way that fr that Craig and Dee Dee would be able to transition back to the to the dramatic stuff and then back to the the interviews, that to me was marvelous filmmaking. Mm. It was marvelous filmmaking, and I said, "Man, that's the kind of films I like to see." Yeah, thank you, um, Tim. Um, so early in your career, we were talking a little bit outside. You started in documentaries, and you were working in documentaries simultaneous to working in low-budget fictional features, yeah. both as assistant editor, editor, and sound designer. Sound, is that right? Uh, supervising sound editor. Supervising yeah. sound editor. Can you tell us a little bit about how yeah. that like flourished for you and well, how you moved into editing from there? Yeah, I mean, sort of the, the first two people I met when I came to New York in 1984, late 1984, one was a documentary person, one was a feature person. So. Uh, the way it kind of progressed is I was cutting, uh, I was assisting in features and sound editing in features and editing in all kinds of other things. Uh, documentary, I mean, everything kind of small initially, but, you know, over time it improved, but industrials and music videos and Whatever you can just all kinds on. of, yeah. you know, the Avon global image piece and stuff like that. Um, so I was constantly going back and forth between the two and going for back and forth between cutting on tape and cutting on film because, you know, all the... We all were still the, working on film. This was, yeah, this yeah. was pre-digital. Pre good old days. Yeah. Um, so, the, you know, that was good, too. It gives, it's two different, you know, fi fiction and nonfiction is two different ways of thinking in a way, and digital 
you know, linear at a tape versus film are kind of two different ways of thinking. Mm -hmm. And when the Avid came along, it was actually good to draw on those two different two different ways of thinking about it. Um, but, uh, you know, at some point, I mean, I was progressing in both of these things. Uh, at some point, I, you know, I wanted to try cutting a feature. And, you know, in order to do that, I, I had an opportunity that somebody I knew, you know, location manager on uh, a John Sayles film that I had been assistant editor on was producing an extremely low budget film. And, you know, they introduced me to the director who was a documentary guy, but he was doing a feature. And so I cut that. It took, you know, took a massive pay cut, barely got paid at all for the feature, but it was, you know, somebody was letting me cut a feature. Uh, so what was the name of that feature? It's called Blowback, uh, directed by Mark Levin, who is a, quite an accomplished documentary uh, director, and I've done some other things for him, for Bill Moyers, you know, uh, that I, I met, actually met a lot of good documentary people through Mark, but I initially started with him on, on features. And then the second feature I cut, again, Ted Hope, who was the first AD on Blowback, was producing a film for this completely unknown Chinese guy named Ang Lee, who uh, who was doing his little no-budget first feature. And that's that's kind of how I met Ang. And, and you took a pay cut for Ang. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, at the time, he wasn't Ang. I yeah. mean, he hadn't yeah. done anything. Yeah. So, and still after that, I kind of went back and forth for the last 15 years or so, it's been almost exclusively features, although I have gone back to documentary a couple of times in recent years. Um, you know, just a few years ago, I did one. And it is it is interesting. You do use a different, kind of a different set of muscles. Um, you know, the big difference in a way, I mean, it sounds mundane to say it, but in a documentary, you have to be truthful. You can't tell the whole truth. I mean, it, the, out, every documentary would be 100 hours long if you hold, told the whole truth. Uh, and even that, somebody's deciding what to shoot before it gets to you. But it, that sense of always asking yourself, am I being truthful, is is what I'm doing fair and honest. Whereas in a in a feature, you're saying, am I telling the story effectively? People don't don't come to a feature to be told the truth. You know, that's not you're there to be manipulated and be told a story and be told it well. So they're very different different goals in the two. A lot of what you, how you approach it is the same. I mean, there's a lot of overlap in the skills involved, but you know that fundamental kind of going back to a feature and saying, uh, put to a doc to a doc and saying, you know, will this stand up to scrutiny if anyone chooses to scrutinize it, and am I telling the truth here to the best of my ability? Am I being fair? That's a real good thing, and I, I find that helpful even in features, you know, because then you go, am I being fair to these characters? Is this honest in the context of the movie and that that's you know an interesting way to think about doing your job even in fiction well i think too the documentary that you cut recently the armstrong lie challenges am i being truthful because we were talking our, our subject is not being truthful well yeah. the subject is not being truthful and then the, like in the process of editing the truth changed yeah. you yeah. found out something else as yeah. i mean you, you're talking about you had one version of the film and then when more news came to light, you had a, a different story. Yeah, and we had to go back and revise the whole thing. Um, the, the first film was great, but it wasn't <laughs> It wasn't the film that was released because it was kind of, it seemed kind of silly after all the, all the news came out. Yeah, I think it's interesting too. I think of documentaries sometimes as very manipulative and intentionally manipulative. Um, 
and so I think you know the 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 line of truth is a choice. It can be very subjective whether you're making documentaries or or narrative. Um, <coughs> but it's I mean the the strength of storytelling I think for sure is is coming through both and everybody here works so emotionally that I can imagine that that um, is something that comes through no matter what genre you're working in. It's probably like carried you back and forth effortlessly. It seems to be very effortlessly effortless for you to go back and forth. Uh, I guess, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's, I mean, it's fun. It's actually, it's, it's very interesting going back and doing that other thing, you know, which it's nice to get reminded every, every five or six years uh, uh, to do that. Uh, just to kind of exercise those muscles again. Yeah, great, thank you. Um, Allison, let's talk about how you kind of started out and began likewise, both in documentary and assistant editing and fiction, how those doors opened up to you to come either you know from one to the other, and then how you entered as a feature editor. Um, well, I, I started actually um, even before documentaries as um, a promo cutter. So I was, when I, I was a musician in college, I got out of school and decided I wanted to be in film or television and had no idea what I wanted to do or how to do it. And um, so I got a job as a PA at um, A&E, which was just starting out at the time, in the promo unit, which I didn't even know existed. Um, and ended up uh, cutting and writing and producing promos for years. And while I was doing that, I, m I ended up moving into cutting trailers and realized that what I really wanted to be doing was cutting the movie, not the trailer. So, um, but how was I gonna do that? Because I was a promo cutter and short form can't cut long form, or that's what everybody told me. So um, I had a friend who was learning this new piece of equipment, the Avid. And she said, well, you know, why don't you learn the Avid because all the film editors are shying away from it and maybe you can move in by being an assistant somehow by learning the Avid. So I did that and I ended up working at Bill, with Bill Moyers because they were beta testing the Avid in those days, which is how I ended up in documentaries. And um, from there I started doing music documentaries and um, I met Barry Brown, who was cutting Spike Lee's movies at the time, and I cut his uh, music documentary, The Who's Tommy. And um, while I was doing that, I was begging him to let me assist on a feature because I was trying to get into features, but everyone said, you're a documentary editor, you can't cut features. So where, wherever I was, I hit that, you can't do that because you do something else. Um, so Barry finally said, come on, be my apprentice on one of Spike's movies and you'll get in the union and um, and so I worked my way up that way and and then he had caught Mira Nair's films um, and there was a film Monsoon Wedding that was coming up that he didn't have he, that he couldn't do and he suggested I do it so that was my first feature and that's how I ended it all up began doing that. that's how it began well, but began. was but was your relationship with very based on uh, your understanding of music and that kind of kind of mutual understanding of how to tell a story around 
music and rockumentaries, where did you guys bond, or, or how did that, how did you, how did he trust you so much? How did you build that trust? Well, I, uh, you know, he he was he's so great with um, nonlinear storytelling, and I learned so much from him about, you know, nonlinear, just being nonlinear, and and you know, start from start from the end and and move things around, and people will still understand what you're talking about. You just, you know, need to to do it smoothly and there has to be some through line and he was really my mentor and taught me so much when I was cutting for him I was a a young editor and it was great having a director who it was really an editor as my director because I actually got to learn something because I never really assisted until after I had been cutting for years so I never got that um, sitting behind the editor watching what he was doing, being able to ask him questions, or sitting with the director and the editor when they were working together. I never had that experience, so I was always very, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, and so working with Barry as, when he was directing that documentary, was very, very helpful for me as an editor. And then when I got to work with him, with Spike, on Summer of Sam and He Got Game, then, after all of that, I finally got the experience of being an assistant. So, um, kind of came in a backwards fashion. Mm -hmm. But but it 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 was seemed seemed to be the perfect setup in a way to lead you to Monsoon Wedding, just having gone through all of that and working with Barry and having just all that under your belt. Yeah, I guess so. And and actually, um, Mira's films have a very documentary feel about them, also. So that I'm sure was uh, a plus. Yeah, cool. Um, Craig McKay. Yes. Yes, the man. Now you have a depth of um, experience, mostly in fictional. I mean, you 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 have some some. You started cutting in news, though. You said early out there, right? I uh, actually started uh, working in a commercial house. And um, there were, uh, as a messenger and uh, carrying cans to the lab, so I'm a real foot soldier. Back when there were cans? Well, there weren't even film schools when I started. Love that. <laughs> well, NYU is just starting, but... Uh, That's why the apprenticeship was so important. It was. It was. Uh, I had worked for this commercial house through... I met somebody who knew somebody who asked me if I wanted a job, and I said yes. I had already made some films when I was very young. I always knew what I wanted to do. Uh, and uh, he hired me, and uh, because I used to make films, I knew how to shoot, so my initial interest, <coughs> excuse me, was cinematography. And uh, so as soon as I got in the commercial house and I was doing all of the you know, grunt work, uh, I had a 60 millimeter Bolex and I started making a picture of the company. And the owner was so impressed. He uh, had just formed a production company and he uh, asked me to do a couple of product shots because I knew how to light, basically. So I did product shots and I, stuff, and I started doing test commercials and I was very young and very successful, uh, very slim, very long hair. <laughs> Madison Avenue loved me. Uh, <laughs> But I didn't like Madison Avenue. Uh, I found that they're more interested in taking pretty pictures 
and I always felt that I was a storyteller. And so uh, one of the people I started with as a messenger was a fellow by the name of Richard Marks, who is a very prominent editor of Apocalypse Now and stuff. But we started together, Jazz Can Carers. And he had already left the company and was working with Dee Dee Allen. And I told him, we had lunch, and I said, I'm really, you know, uh, this is not working. I'm not about pretty pictures. And he said, well, why don't you come back in the cutting room? He said, it's the one place where everything comes together. You have to know a little bit about every part of the process. You know, and I know you like story. And so uh, that really clicked with me. And so I put down the camera, and uh, I proceeded to uh, get assistant work. I, I knew some people, who, because I, the film company I had working in, uh, there were some prominent people coming in and out. Uh, who had done some features, who had done documentaries. And so I started as an assistant. And I, fortunately, I got to work with some very important people. Uh, Alan Heim, I was his assistant. And uh, Evan Lotman, I was his assistant. And uh, Just so we have it up for the record, in, in case anybody's not familiar with those names, just mention a couple of credits so people can recognize who those uh, Alan, names are. Well, Alan Heim is all that jazz. I don't know if you won the Oscar for editing. Uh, Evan Lotman and I did the original Exorcist together. You probably heard of that one. Uh, and uh, Barry Malkin, who worked on Apocalypse Now. And uh, I was fortunate, and I had, I had and Dee Dee, Dee Dee Allen, uh, I had done some work for. And uh, uh, so I was in this assistant category, and then, but I wanted to start to cut because I was assistant for a very long time. And I told Dee Dee that I wanted to cut, and she remembered that. I mean, at some point later, she uh, recommended me for a cutting job at uh, ABC News Close-Up Department, which was a documentary unit. And so I, the first thing I ever cut was a documentary. Of course, I didn't want to do it. I mean, I was only interested in feature films. I, I had no interest in documentaries. And, uh, and so I pursued this career, and. Actually, from that, I got to do some feature work. And I worked my way up to, you know, the, the stepladder is, you know, apprentice, assistant, associate editor. And, with, and on a couple of feature films, I got to be associate editor, which means you cut some scenes. And, uh, and based on that, working with Barry Malkin um, uh, and knowing a lot of people in the business, uh, a number of whom had worked on features. Uh, I let everybody know that uh, I wasn't going to be an assistant anymore, that I wanted to edit. It was my proclamation. <laughs> and, well, 11 months later, <laughs> I got a call. And uh, uh, it was to work on a TV movie of the week called How to Pick Up Girls. And, uh, and I worked on that, and that led to another TV movie of the week, and I did a number of those. I liked them because they weren't serious work. They were complete films. And, uh, and then after that, I eventually uh, was asked to work on the miniseries Holocaust with Steve Rotter. And uh, that was a big point of uh, departure. I mean, I won Emmys and Eddie Awards and all kinds of things. And then Barry Malkin had, uh, was going to do a film with Jonathan Demme. And uh, he couldn't do it because of schedule. And so Jonathan asked Barry, who do you recommend? And he, and he recommended me. 
So I met with uh, Jonathan. We had lunch. He was doing this film called Melvin and Howard. And he had sent me the script, and he said, what did you think of the script? Now, I had seen Handle with Care, which he did, which I thought was an exceptional film. And I, I said, quite frankly, I don't like the script. I hear this is me, <laughs> right, <laughs> trying, trying to get my uh, big feature. <laughs> and uh, he said, oh, really? He said, yeah. I said, no, he said, no, that's not what I'm interested in. I'm interested in working with you because I like your take on the American culture. And I like how you perceive it and how you represent it. That I find it really exciting. And so he gave me the job. That script later went on to win an Academy Award. <laughs> 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 Shows you how much. Uh, anyway. Uh, so anyway, so I had a, a, you know, I ended up having a long relationship with Jonathan Demme. And he, he was somebody who liked to get involved with uh, documentaries and feature work. And so I would help him out. Uh, he, he, uh, I would come and work with him on something. We did a, a documentary on Mandela, which got nominated for an Academy Award. Uh, I co-produced a documentary with him uh, called Haiti, Dreams of Democracy. Uh, and I started seeing that the knowledge I had as a narrative editor really helped me in terms of structuring documentary. And so I went on, I've been, had a career of a number of feature films and still doing some documentaries, cutting them, producing them. And uh, I, the part I liked and the part I thought interesting for me was that I was creating an emotional line. I always thought documentaries were informational and feature films were emotional, you know? That was early thinking. Uh, and, uh, and then I, I, I got an offer to do this film from James Seamus at Focus Features. It was a film called Babies. It needed help. These French filmmakers were trying to cut this film for uh, a year and a half, and they couldn't make it work. So Seamus called me, and he said, take this and you know, run with it, basically, is what he said. And so I took it, and it, it, was, a, it was the biggest challenge I've ever had because there was no narration. There was basically no dialogue. There was no music, right? It was these five kids from different parts of the world going through, uh, growing up through the different stages, crawling, to walking, talking, eating. And I followed each of the kids in the different countries so you could watch them developmentally. That, I had my line. I knew how to make that work. Uh, and I was hoping I could make it play. And I was able to make it play because the kids were so wonderful. I had my first shot, I knew what my last shot was. All I had to do was get there. And so that whole documentary is based totally on an emotional line, nothing else. It's like hung together with Gossamer. And uh, it was one of the most difficult challenges I had uh, as somebody who's, uh, you know, predominantly works in narrative. Uh, I have to say, I just want to talk about truth here. Yeah. You know, because I, feel, I find in both arenas, that what you're trying to do is, at least in, in the narrative form, is you're trying to, to be absolutely as honest you can, honest as you can with the emotional moment. You need to find the emotional truth of that moment. And it's the I find it's the same in, in documentaries. I mean, there's, there's a, there's a in, only it's based, it's more story-based. Uh, it may be more intellectually based. It can also be emotionally based. But I feel on both sides that I, as an editor, am trying to create something that in, its, in the moments that I create and build are as truthful as I can make them. 
you shared this very short anecdote that kind of reflects upon the most the kind of most basic elements of of editing and storytelling. I think it was a story by Herb Gardner that you, that you shared about Herb Gardner talking to you about the three basic elements that he feels are important for that stories. That was not Herb Gardner. That was Patty Chayefsky. Oh, Patty, Patty Chayefsky. Patty yeah, Chayefsky. your buddy Patty was, Chayefsky. It was, I knew. Hanging around the table drinking with Bob Fosse. Yeah. Yeah. I used to hang Tell out that with story. those guys. And I, I don't know if you know who Patty Chayefsky is, but he... Yeah, I think you do. All right. Well, tell, yeah. tell just so we have it on the record. Well, uh... uh I'll just tell you, he wrote one of the best movie lines, I'm mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. That was Barry Chayefsky. From Network. It, yeah, and Network, and uh, Marty, and... Uh, um, He's also a playwright. Yes. Uh, he was he was interesting. I always... I, we would have dinner together, and um, I was a young kid, and I liked to do some writing. I still do. Um, and um, I've sold scripts. Um, uh, and I, I, there I had Pat Chayefsky in front of me at a table, and Patty wrote these eloquent speeches, but he talked like a New York cab driver. Uh, and I said, Patty, give me some words. You know, I want to do some writing someday. He said, Kid, there's only three things you got to know: who's your main character, what does he want, and who's going to prevent him from getting it. That's all you got to know. And I said, okay, thank you. <laughs> I, f I felt totally blessed <laughs> with, those, with those three things. And uh, I, I use that. Uh, I think writing is a very important tool in all of this, uh, especially in my feature work and uh, very important in the documentary work. Uh, there's a great book that helped me uh, on all levels, whether it was producing, whether it was d directing, or, or whether it was editing. Uh, and it, it's a classic. It's called the, the Art of Dramatic Writing by Lajo Segri. And so I recommend that book. Uh, I found it most helpful in terms of structure, in terms of having an overview of something coming in, you know, coming into material. And um, so uh, I find that writing component and being involved in that uh, is as important as being emotionally intelligent, which I think is one of the things that a great editor has to be, has to have a high degree of emotional intelligence. Uh, I think that, and the other most important thing, there's a single thing I'll, I'll leave you with, the most important thing and uh, uh, that I got from Dee Dee Allen, we, and I'm, we had known each other for many years, and then we finally ended up working together on Reds as partners. Uh, Dee Dee, I can remember from years back, always used to say, cut with your gut cut with your gut. And this process for me is an intuitive process. It's not necessarily an intellectual process. I mean, there are some decisions, but it's predominantly an intuitive process. And so uh, she taught me that I needed to cut with my gut and I needed to listen to that voice. Uh, that's the most truthful voice you can follow. And, uh, and it's tough getting to learn to get there and listen to it because you want to deny it most of the time. and But eventually you'll learn after you've made enough mistakes that you should have listened to the, that in the first place. So uh, cutting with your gut is uh, where I live. Good advice. Thank you. Um, Alan Oxman, I will let you uh, take my microphone. And But you now you're coming at editing um, starting in 
fictional. You also you also worked in documentary early on, but you've mainly landed in documentary not only as an editor but as a producer and as a teacher. And um, Sam Pollard does a lot of producing as well. And I'm just curious what strengths you find in being both a producer and a, a teacher and uh, you know coming out of coming out of editing and how that how that network that you've built for yourself supports you in all of those incarnations yeah it's a just tough question um, so I kind of started more in documentary actually yeah. and then moved into narrative and then um, what happened is I was an editor for mainly an editor for about 15 years and then Oh, okay. Well, I'll tell my I'll try to tell my story quickly. That's okay. so hard to follow up um, these stories. It's embarrassing. Um, so my story was uh, I knew I wanted to do something in. I finished school and I came to New York and I knew I wanted to do something in film, but I wasn't quite sure what. And I got an uh, internship at a documentary film company that made documentaries about China. And while there, I took a class at SVA with a man named Richard Pepperman, who taught film editing there forever. Uh, and it was on a movieola, and it was we just cut two actors saying one line back and forth. It was like once a week for four weeks or something, and just that it, he was so passionate about it, and it was a very exciting class. So I then told the woman who ran the documentary company. She had said to me one day what I was interested in doing, and I said I thought I might be interested in editing. And then a week later, she recommended me. Uh, to um, an editor named Mauro Tremayev, who was making a series of educational documentaries. She'd gotten a big contract to do it for a year. And she hired me as the apprentice editor, and she bought one of the first Avids in New York. I think it might have been the fifth one. Our serial number was 005. And it was so impressive that she did that, uh, because she wasn't into technical stuff. She was sort of the producer editor of the documentary, but she kind of saw the future and bought it. And she said, she ended up becoming a very successful documentary director. She said, I'm going to shoot for a month. When I come back, I want you to show me how to use this. I never want to look at the manual. So for a month, I just sat there learning the Abbott. Uh, and this was when it was $100,000 and assistants couldn't get on it. Even editors had to start cutting before they really had time to learn it. So by the end of that job, a few months later, I, I was an Avid expert six months into my career when there were almost none. Like most assistants took years to get good at it because they didn't have time to really learn it while they were ingesting footage. So that led me to get a bunch of really great documentary assistant editing jobs. Um, but I was worried that I was getting pigeonholed in documentary. I was interested, I got interested in narrative. Um, and so I went to the American Film Institute. Um, and ironically, something that um, Tim was talking about, so I went from being on Avid from the first day I learned editing they were on RM450s, three-quarter to three-quarter machines, which <laughs> I still miss them. They never crashed, ever. So uh, you remember someone else is here from school. So um, I had to learn linear editing. And I, ironically, I really liked it. Even after nonlinear, having to go back to linear, you have to think much longer and much harder before every edit you make. Um, and plan. you need to plan and think and take your, you have to slow down. You're forced to slow down. So I really loved it. So I was there for a year, cut six short films, and really learned a lot about narrative editing. And then still, it's hard. I, probably hard for people who weren't in that era to believe, but it 
took a long time for people to learn computer editing and people who were on film to kind of warm up to it. So even like two years later after The Avid came out, I got my first narrative uh, feature job was Welcome to the Dollhouse. And it was because they couldn't find someone. Who, they For some reason, they decided they were cutting on Avid before they picked the editor. Uh, and they also had so little money that most no editors would do it. Um, and he was totally unknown at that point. So um, uh, that was the first narrative. And then I co-edited a documentary. I can't remember. It was right before that or right after that called Unzipped. And uh, it's just funny that people are talking about truth and the key is emotion and truth is uh, Cutting Welcome, the, both of those films, I felt like a fraud afterwards because on Welcome to the Dollhouse, I cut it as a drama, even though it was a black comedy, it, I cut it as a drama. And so people would then call me and say, I want you to come and cut my comedy and because you're good at comedic editing. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. I just try to get to the truth of the script. And if the script was funny, it brings it out by being truthful rather than trying to kind of gild the lily with some kind of comedy editing. Um, and so I'd be like, okay, sure, even thinking I have no special comedy thing. And then the same thing happened with the documentary Unzipped. It was shot by, um, uh, the director was a photographer, and the other cinematographer is one of the world's best cinematographers. I'm blanking on her name right now. Someone might know. But um, Ellen... Ellen Curris. Ellen Curris. So they shot it with crazy angles, Super 8 film, video, color, black and white, like moving around all the time. And so the editing had to be very kinetic, but you could not be. All the shots were incredibly kinetic. So after that, people would say, oh, I want you to make my documentary like Unzipped, and then it'd just be one guy sitting for an interview for 20 <laughs> hours. Um, but so I did that going back and forth for 15 years, and then I decided uh, I, I taught at different film schools and stuff, and I really liked it, and so I decided um, to start full-time teaching film editing. So I started a film editing school called the Edit Center, and um, we would teach narrative and documentary, but we would we got involved with a lot of documentaries that were really great, but that had run out of money um, to finish the, a long, to even start a long post. So I got involved in helping those documentaries and kind of supervising the edit and having students that I, were ment that I was mentoring stay on and edit it. And so that's how I kind of got into producing documentaries. I don't know if that answers your Absolutely, question. Absolutely, yeah, okay. and then some. Um, but tell us a little bit more about um, how you've built up such a strong network because I know that I personally come to you when I'm looking for a recommendation and how important community is in being um, a successful anything, a successful editor, a successful producer. I think just feel like we should hit that note a little bit when you're, you're kind of in the middle of a really big, important network that you've built over years. Yeah, so it started with, so I started this um, film editing school. One of the reasons was uh, when it moved, when everything moved to computer editing, assistants no longer kind of got the film for the editor and learned by being very involved, the way sort of Allison was talking about. Suddenly, assistants were just loading footage at night and having almost no interaction with the director and editor. So uh, I really didn't like that. I thought it was really sad. So um, this was a way to help students get to work on projects. So the way the school works is I would get very low budget features and take a group of students through cutting the feature. So I would supervise them as they edit it and the filmmaker would get a free rough cut. So it's kind of like a barbershop school. Um, so the students, um, then a lot of them would stay on uh, to kind of help with 
projects that would come along that didn't have much money and needed sort of an up-and-comer. And so I stayed fr very good friends with tons of the students. Um, and so that's why I know so many people. And also a lot of people would teach there. So it just became this community of editors and assistant editors um, through that process. Before we go to Q&A, I'll just ask you all to maybe share. Um, uh, thanks. Um, Sam, I know you You and I talked a, a while ago um, about the editor being like a composer. And there's a certain set of qualities that are essential to being a good composer. And I think we're talking about rhythm. I think we're talking about like overall um kind of ear for for story and development and i'm wondering if you could tease out some of the essential qualities you think kind of live within that concept of what it takes to be a really really successful editor uh patience okay <laughs> you need a tremendous amount of patience uh, that to me is first and foremost mm. i think that's very important you know, I, I think every editor is different. I mean, I look at lots of editors' work and I see different styles, different rhythms, different senses of pacing. But, you know, uh, to me, a really good editor is always thinking about, you know, I think to just echo what, what Craig is saying, what everybody's really saying, is that to find the emotional truth mm. of a sequence. You know, you look, at the, you look at your dailies and you're wondering, you're trying to find those moments that you think that when you put them together will help energize and tell the story in a way that'll engage people. You know, I mean, some of us, you know, like Allison, she went to music school. I play an instrument. You know, so music to me is a very important thing when I'm editing. I always, you know, think about music. I think about how I want to cut in terms of how I hear things rhythmically, you know. But, you know, I also love movies. So when I'm, when I'm editing, I'm thinking about old movies I've seen and what's influenced me, you know, from Wells' Citizen Kane to Fellini's La Dolce Vita, you know. If those things sometimes in my head are they appropriate to what I'm trying to edit, you know, I give a great example. I was editing a documentary about um, about this hospital, this this pop up hospital that was in down in Tennessee, and the edit the director was looking at a sequence I had put together, and he said to me before I started to edit, he said, he says I really wanted to feel like uh, Alain Rene's last year at Marion Bad, and <laughs> oh, I <okay>. said really. <laughs> He wanted it to be different. So I went and watched, I rewatched the last year at Marion Band, you know, and I could see what he was, he wanted something that was non-linear, you know, a little surreal, a little strange. And so I looked at that and I studied it and I went back and I, re and I cut the sequence and he said, yeah, that's what I want. That's what I'm looking for, you know, which was not in my, my normal way of looking at the material, but I said, oh, okay, I'll take, on, I'll take on the challenge. So to me, a good editor is always open and paying attention and taking in material and trying to figure out how to create it in a way that it's going to be a good story. It's going to have some emo going to have emotion, you know, and not be flat. The, the challenge with documentaries all the time, and I've had this happen, is where I cut a sequence in a way that I can see that it really logically works, yeah. and then it's not emotional. Hmm. You know, it's not emotional. I mean, I, I just finished working on um, with Gibney on the Sinatra documentary, right. the four-hour documentary, and right. I cut a sequence about... Frank Jr. being kidnapped. And I had cut it one way, and it was a very linear way I did it, you know? And I had Frank Jr. talking, and his sisters talking, and his mother. 
And Gibney looked at it and he said, well, it's not, I don't feel it. Mm. I don't feel it. Mm -hmm. I recut it. He said, "Uh, I don't feel it. I don't feel it. Then finally I thought one day, fuck, maybe I should just flip it on his his head like what Barry would do. Start from the back. So I did. I completely flipped it around, made like a flashback and then brought it back to the present. And he finally said, oh, yeah, that's it. That's what's working for me. So this is, you know, the thing about editing is that you always have to be faced with a challenge. I always say the biggest challenge that, that you have to have as an editor is that you always have to re-edit. You always have to re-edit. It never happens, particularly in documentaries, never the first cut. It's always about the re-edit, the second yeah. cut, the third cut, the fourth cut, you know? And it's and you just have to be patient and you have to have this, the fortitude to say, okay, I'm gonna find it and make it work. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, good. That's it's good. To, and well, and Tim, you're in some like real life trenches at this very moment. I, I mean, yeah, I don't know how much you can talk about. Probably but, not too much. Uh, yeah. No. Okay. But they're I'm working on a movie. Yeah, working on a, working on a movie with Ang, and yeah. um, I mean, talking about being a good problem solver. There's another way that I've discovered after I I had the the um the opportunity to talk with a couple of editors, uh, Colby Parker, who is working on Deepwater Horizon, I think right now with Peter Berg, and came off of um, uh, Ants, but he's worked with Peter Berg a lot, and talks about having two cuts often for Peter Berg for a scene because, you know, that's the style that they've developed for each other. Um, And when he worked on Ants, he came on... Um, as the assembly editor, and I'm curious if that may be. Do you do you work with an assembly editor? That's a different no, person. Is that no? no you're all the heavy lifting is actually done during the assembly. Okay, that's when you go through the footage, and and I I never cut a scene once. Right. I can do a scene, and I love the way it's cut. And I say, okay, let me do it again, do it differently. Sometimes like complete, like uh, flip it on its head, and let me take it from well, a different perspective. You know, with a narrative, when you're assembling. You go in order. You go in script yeah. order. You don't start changing things around too much. You do that later. Right. But, you know, I'll have a scene that's masters and close-ups and move around, or it's like a big action scene, uh, and I'll do it once, and I'll say, yeah, that's good. Now let me do it again and just do something different. Just force myself to do it at least twice and sometimes four or five times. Um, sometimes Before you show it to Before the I director? show it to the director, yeah. Sometimes. And, and, and then depending on the director... In the circumstances, sometimes I'll show them, uh, nobody wants to see five versions of something, yeah. but sometimes I'll show them a few. Sometimes I do just preliminary versions. There are, there was a scene in uh, Lost Caution, one of Ang Lee's films. I had 78 setups, I believe, oh. and it's four people sitting around a table. Okay. Nobody gets up. Oh, my God. But, and I actually, they're playing Mahjong, and I actually didn't have enough coverage. But that <laughs> one, that scene... I cut it, I did seven, you know, you can't just sit down with that much footage. You can't just sit down and go, oh, yeah, I know how to cut this and cut it. Right. You have to explore a lot of things. So I did seven versions of, seven full versions of that scene before I cut version one, just trying to break it down into manageable pieces. And then I did three versions, you know, after, the, then I did versions one, two, and three. So I sent those, but I had all these other ones, and that's how I learned all the footage. So, yeah, it's, you know, if you, you have, a, if you're working with a director who tells you, here's how to cut the scene, you know, you should cut the scene that way, but you shouldn't be done. 
when you do that. You should do it again because your job is to explore what's possible with the footage. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I've never worked with a director who's, t who's given me notes about how to cut a scene. Um, and usually I'm, I don't even watch dailies with a director. So, you know, it's kind of my responsibility to try a bunch of things. And, you know, I don't, it's important, I think, not to have a style that's your own. You know, I don't have a style. My style comes from the footage. It comes from whatever is the, the best thing that I can do with this footage. And depending on the movie, you know, it's different styles. And that's what, that's what makes the job great, is getting to work in a bunch of different styles. And you work for one director, and they shoot one way, and you work for another director, they shoot a different way. You, it's, you know, you do a martial arts film, and then you do a little family drama, and they're just different. And that's what's so great. But if, you know, if you have some kind of preconceived notions about how this scene is supposed to be cut together or how this movie is supposed to feel and you're not actually watching the footage and letting the footage tell you what to do and getting in there and working with it and feeling what works and what doesn't, you're not really doing your job right. And that's the same in, in documentary also. You have to just get in where, you know, I've done documentaries. Uh, I did a part of a series for Bill Moyers that was a bunch of segments. And the first two segments I did, the director, you know, they went out and shot a bunch of stuff and gave it to me and said, call me, you know, when you got something for me to look at. And I had to get in and figure out the story. And then the third segment I did was for a different director, and they gave me a paper cut with time codes and script and everything. I was like, really? Yeah. You know, I'm just finding the pretty B-roll shots to, to put in over the, to cover this voiceover. You know, and it's kind of, it's pretty boring. You know, that, that's the way that director was used to working, and I was there to cut the piece, so I did that. But, um, you know, it's much more interesting to get in there and find it. And depending on what the piece is trying to accomplish, sometimes you're just working in raw emotion. Sometimes you have some serious information you have to convey. Sometimes there's, there are all different things, requirements for different projects. And it's important to be sensitive to what, what's needed here today and, you know, and not bring in my own sense of, of what I'm supposed to be doing with this. Right. So agility. Is resilience. Yeah, and that's what makes the job interesting. You know, I'm glad I'm not cutting the same movie over and over again. Yeah, cool. So patience comes in. Yes, a lot of patience. Um, and Allison, the the background. In, I'm I'm really fascinated with your background as a musician. I just I am. I appreciate that talent, and I think it has some bearing on being a talented editor, and I'm wondering if you could talk about working with sound and rhythm as driving the narrative and how those skills have have supported you in both documentary and narrative. I think I actually rely on that a lot because because that's my background and I and I feel like um, it's great having music and sound effects and dialogue and silence mm. as you know diff the you know different layers of what I'm doing you know like Sam was saying we're composers just like a composer will have you know have different instrumentation when when we're editing the music and the sound effects and the dialogue it's all different instrumentation and they have to play off of each other and um, because that's my background that's that's where I go first, I think. Mm -hmm. And um, and it's interesting what Tim was saying about um, 
cutting and recutting scenes because I can cut a scene and and think that I've I've found the best performances or what you know directors always like is that the best for performance no I put the worst performance in here <laughs> but it's true you go through and you think okay this is this line was great here or this line was great there and you don't you can't pay attention to circle takes because you you know chances are you're you're going to be finding the better lines in in places where you didn't think they were going to be and I'll go through and think that I put all the what I thought were the best takes in and then I go through it again and decide well this plays off of this guy's line better if I use this other take so it's it's all so intertwined that you can't go through and say oh this is my circle take you have to use that well it's not necessarily going to be the best for for that scene and um also I feel like when you're making a documentary or a feature I think the newer filmmakers go in thinking they're making this film or they're making this documentary and this is what it's going to be about and what you know Tim experienced with um his documentary um, happens every single time. You go in thinking you're you're gonna make this documentary, and while you're shooting it, you find out other things because it's a learning experience. And I think that also is true for for narrative. I think you have to make the film that that you shot because you can have something on on uh, you know you can have a script, but once the actors get a hold of it, and once the DP gets a hold of it, and once the director gets a hold of it, it turns into something different. It's not that script that you started out with. So you have to make that film, and if you don't make that film, then that's not the truth. Right on. <laughs> Amen. Must tell yeah. the truth. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you. That was, uh, that was really helpful as far as just kind of appreciating um, the the uh, the background not only of being a musician but also um, being a storyteller and being a creative person that has to uh, kind of align themselves in both of those kind of f both of those um, frequencies when you're going in there and putting a putting a scene together putting a story together um, and Craig you and I talked a little bit about the importance of craft and. Um, the lost art of apprenticeship, and I'm wondering if you could um, just sh share what may have been sifted out that you think is really essential when you're when you're editing or when you're telling a story. Well, um, <coughs> first of all, let me just say that I'm also a musician, and you're also a musician. And, uh, it's an important component. Very. Um, Talk about that. Uh, <coughs> you know. As a, when I was trained and when I had my apprenticeship and uh, uh, there was a definite, you know, category in the union. So there was an apprentice, an assistant, and an editor. Uh, and then we merged with California and somehow in the negotiations, the position of apprentice fell away. And, uh, and I was always really angry particularly with our local, because it never really got in there to fight for it. There was no opportunity for these kids to learn. How I learned was exactly what everybody's been talking about. I stood right next to the editor. I got to see every decision that was made. And I was able to do that with five great editors. And uh, 
And today, there is not that opportunity. It just doesn't exist. Uh, and on top of that, a lot of when a lot of editors are working, they like to lock themselves in the room and want to be by alone, by themselves alone. So somebody doesn't really get the opportunity to pass on, you know, the knowledge. Uh, uh, I always, uh, on every film I've cut, I always had my assistant in on every decision. Sometimes it would always be my first assistant, some second assistant, and apprentice, not necessarily. Sometimes I would bring them in. And uh, I feel it's very important that, you know, that, that sense of involvement ha is happening. Uh, t today, it's, I don't, I'm not quite sure how it works today. I mean, I don't really, s you know, I see kids just getting the opportunity to cut with not a lot of formal training and, and without having the craft passed on, you know. And so I've, s and this mostly happened when we went, you know, when we went from film to, di to digital. Most of that happened. And producers thought they could get away with less because we were making films faster and all the apprentice had to do or the assistant had to do was something technical. And so the, the loss of the apprenticeship is a, a serious loss for our particular craft. And um, I would, you know, all, all I, when I talk to everybody, all I do is I, I encourage everybody to involve uh, to involve your first assistant so you can pass it on, uh, as I do, and I still do to this day. Uh, and so it's a very difficult path getting to editor. It's more difficult. Uh, in some sense, it's more difficult. In some sense, it's more easy because uh, people are seduced by the technology, particularly producers. You know, you know, as avid, you know, boom, he can cut a movie. No, I'm sorry. So it's a it's you know it's a real loss. Uh, I don't have anything more to say about it except that I wish that could get turned around somehow. Of course, you know, the money situation keeps getting squashed and squashed, so there's obviously no room for the apprenticeship. Very rare occasions on big films, uh, there are apprentices, you know, but it's very few and far in between, you know. Um, I did want to say one other thing. Yeah. Uh, just uh, in terms of a bit of what Tim was talking about and, and Allison, they, they both, and uh, Sam mentioned it too, uh, and I think for me, the single most important component in this process that we all put ourselves through when we go, I, I mean, aside from playability of a scene and all of that, the most important component I feel is rhythm. And it gets undersold and it's not understood uh, and it's something that all of us are very much aware of unconsciously, even when we're watching a scene from moment to moment to moment to moment. What's the rhythm of that, you know? What's the rhythm of the actors? And I mean, and, and what's the rhythm of the narrative and how it's moving forward? So I think that's, I think that's a single, that's the single most important component that I feel uh, in all my years of putting movies together uh, that I try to honor and a part of part of that comes from my being a musician, you know. And and it's true. What Allison's saying is it's totally totally true. Uh, can, can I ask Craig yeah. a question? Yeah, 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 yeah. <coughs> Craig, a couple of weeks ago, I showed 
I showed my class that scene from Reds when Diane Keaton comes to Moscow and she's with Beatty and they they're going back and forth and they're in the apartment and they're out in the in the outside demonstrating and they're back in the apartment and they're outside demonstrating and she hasn't made love to him yet and they're outside and the music rises and they finally make love. Man, that pacing on that sequence is so, how long did it take you guys to put that sequence together? Well, uh, that was one of my sequences, by the way. It took a while. Uh, uh, anything took a while when you were working with Warren Beatty, excuse me. <laughs> Uh, a very smart man, but uh, sometimes, I mean, sometimes he wasn't sure, and sometimes he was, as you would know, Susan. Uh, uh, but that particular sequence, um, in a lot of the sequences, he left Didi and myself alone, believe it or not. Uh, he was still busy finishing the script with Elaine May and Mike Nichols and... So we got to carry a large part of the load in terms of how the narrative moved forward, you know, and where to use the documentary footage. I mean, just getting that to work alone in the movie uh, was trial and error. It had, you know, the problem when you're telling a narrative and you stop to go to, you go off that narrative to a doc documentary piece, the whole narrative line stops and then you have to start it back up again. And what we were trying to do, in which I think we succeeded, was whatever the documentary unit was, was an extension of the narrative line so that it, n it never stopped, you know? And that was the real trick, but it was only done by trial and error. There was no particular intelligence, you know, uh, scenario for doing that, you know? Uh, but it took, it to answer your question, yes, it took a long time. <laughs> and Tim, yeah, you had a yeah, just uh, about the first part of what Greg was talking about. You know, when I, I assisted on four features, and of course it's great standing there because he used to stand there and hang trims. Seeing the editor edit was great. Probably the most important thing I learned was after the director was in the room and watching how the editor talks to the director and how you work together and cooperate because even more so than in documentary. I mean, in documentary, people know they're going out and getting a lot of stuff and you have to find it. With a, a feature, a narrative, often the director really thinks they've got it all. You know, they went out and got what they want and they know what their movie is. And you can't, as an editor, you can't just say, no, you didn't get that. Here's your movie. Uh, you know, it, it's a process and you have to be patient and learning how to talk with somebody who has a lot invested, personally invested in this thing, learning how to work through that process without, you know, avoiding conflict where possible, it, having it where you need to, and just how to, on a personal level, get through that. That was a very important skill that I learned from watching someone else. And that's sometimes, you know, people don't think about how important a job that is for an editor, but the, in a way, having the personal skills is just as important as having the editing chops. I mean, if, you, if, you're, if you're confrontational and argumentative and stubborn, you're not gonna get the job done uh, no matter how good an editor you are. So that's that's an important skill that I learned uh, assisting, and it that, again, is something that people don't miss because people don't get now because they're generally, you know, in the other room. 
Walter Murch talked about um, the fact that he feels like it's his job to challenge the director's view. Like that's why he's there to really test it and kind of like let's road test this before before anybody else can even get close to it. And um, do you? I mean, is there an example of anything that you've experienced or that you witnessed that was very you know where there was a challenge kind of? Yeah. Put well, forth? if you agree about everything with the director, there's no point in you being there. Uh, you know. Ang, Ang Lee once, he was speaking somewhere and said, oh, Tim's great, we disagree all the time. And it's actually not true. We agree about 90% of the time, but it's the last 10% that we talk about because the, you know, the, the rest we don't have to fight about. We, you know, we agree enough. I understand his sens sensibility and I understand what he's getting at, but if we don't push each other, um, then you know we're not accomplishing anything. And sometimes... You know, sometimes the editor kind of goes through a dejected funk and the director pushes them and then the director gets fed up and then the, the editor pushes them. And you have to push each, uh, each other, but it has to be constructive. Mm -hmm. You know, and trying to do that thing where you push each other in a way that progresses, that helps the film progress while maintaining the relationship and the respect that, that lets you to keep working together and, you know, makes me open to try whatever he wants and makes him open to try whatever I want. That's how you get, you know, that kind of relationship is what, what makes you able to try, keep trying and keep pushing and try more things. And, you know, if people dig their heels in, you know, if you start saying, well, this is my version and that's your version, you, you want to avoid that as long as you can. You know, you don't want to say, well, yeah, see, that's your version of the cut that's causing this problem. But my version, you know, it's, you, it's really best if you can go, well, we can do it like this or we can do it like this. And, and never never make it confrontational. I mean, there are times when that's needed too and you have to be sensitive. Different directors are, you know, they're just different people right. and it's the two of you in a room and you have to figure out a relationship that helps you get the movie made, right. you know? So f figuring out all of that is a big important part of the job. The other thing is patience. As Sam said, you know, I, the producers will come in with their notes and just kind of steamroll you and then leave because they have a limited amount of time with the director. I'm sitting next to the director all day. I can I can take my time. And so, you know, and sometimes over that time I realized, you know what, I was wrong. And and I didn't, I'm glad I didn't like dig my heels in on something. Um, you know, ultimately it's the director's movie and so and I'm there to make it work. But try you know, the human side of it, the the, the personal skill side of it is very, very important. Um, and I think most most good editors have that. You know, you're usually the, when you're in a room with producers and directors, the editor's usually the sanest person in the room. Thank you. Um, Alan, you have come into a lot of um, consulting and have this kind of perspective, being able to like stand back a little bit and look at stories both I mean, a lot of, I think a lot of documentaries, but I think you're still consulting on some some fiction as well. Mostly, Mostly documentaries, okay. Um, are there common challenges that you encounter? Or is, is it kind of like, oh God, okay, well, or is it just like a totally different universe coming into each? Yes. Well, I do want to just continue the trope oh, of yes. uh, Craig McKay scenes to show students. Um, <laughs> Every class I teach, I show there's a scene in Silence of the Lambs where the Jodie Foster character 
is going to the house of the killer and simultaneously the FBI, her boss, is going there to save her and it's in her cut and, and I'm guessing most people have seen it. It turns out uh, they're at different houses and it's a massive, like, oh my God. Uh, so, uh, And it's a great teaching tool. And I always say that there was a rumor, someone told me they met you and that you said that it wasn't planned that way, that that was created. Okay, good, because that's what I tell everybody. So, well, how I was, was it planned? <laughs> um, the director shot it linear, in a linear fashion. It was not meant to be parallel cut. And uh, when I got to dailies and I'm looking at it and I'm saying, well, this should be parallel cut. It's, it's shot, but like a lot of directors, they'll keep shooting and you have to open it up and make time for things to happen. Uh, and so I cut it, I tried to get a hold of Demi. He was, we're shooting in Pittsburgh. I couldn't get a hold of him that day, so I asked to, for the script supervisor and I'm talking to her and I said, is this meant to be parallel or is it meant to be linear? Because it's shot linear and it, on the page it was linear and she said, well, it's linear. And I'm going, didn't feel right. So I cut it, and about three weeks later, I got to show the scene to Jonathan, and we're in the, the, cut, in the screening room, and the scene comes up, and after it finishes, Jonathan leans over and whispers in my ear, how come you didn't parallel that? <laughs> and so I then decided, yeah, we're going to parallel it. The scene, it's, it's an interesting thing about that scene. There's, the scene took three days to cut to figure it out, how I could open it up, how I could get it to play, because uh, uh, there were four components going on all at the same time, virtually. And uh, uh, I was in the third day, and I was just about, I just about had the scene. I knew I had the scene, but something was missing. And uh, I was really frustrated, because I had worked very hard on it, very long hours. and. Uh, I'm sitting there frustrated, and I look across the room. This, this Silence of the Lambs was still cut on film. I cut that on a steam back, as a matter of fact, for your information. And uh, I look across the room, and there's a trim hanging in the bin. And I go over, and I look at the trim, and I realize that that trim is the shot I need to make the <laughs> sequence work. So I take it out, I put it in, and that was the scene. That's the way it stayed, but it was like, so it was some kind of <laughs> mystical experience that it, you know. So you never know. I mean, things do happen like that, you know. Uh, anyway. Yeah. So um, I'll answer your question. It goes back to something that Tim said that um, you had mentioned someone who sort of has someone else cut the assemblies and then yeah. comes in and edits. And Tim said, in his experience, the heavy lifting is in cutting the assembly. Uh, I could not agree more. So what I, the re the way I've gotten involved in documentaries is that they've mostly been films that had no, they run out of money, um, and they were about topics that I was passionately interested in. So I would get involved, and uh, I would find sort of an up-and-coming editor who could help and sort of coach them, but not that I was consulting because I could, from afar, tell someone how to edit the movie. But the, the biggest issue that would come up usually is that um, if you don't do it right in the assembly, you can't fix it in the fine cut. So all, a lot of these documentaries, people had very little money, they would cut it themselves, and they would take two, three, four years. But because they were cutting it themselves and didn't know how to edit, 
they'd get the assemblies wrong. Uh, and then they would think that someone with a lot of experience, like any of these people, could come in. Most This is my typical experience. Oh, if I could get an expert, they could come in, and they know story. They can fix it very quickly. And they would actually think I could do that. I would say, so I had to be sort of the bad cop. Yeah. Or like the doctor telling someone they have a terrible disease. <laughs> like, you have two choices, to quit or to start from scratch. And it was very it's a very painful conversation. Um, and But a lot of people would take my advice and they would start from scratch with someone who was an editor um, that I was that I knew um, so that that's been my experience great that's that's really crucial well I think um, we can oh we'll, we'll open it up to questions at this point if anybody has a question after stories yeah go well, right here uh, let me give you this so you my, my question is for Allison um, thank you guys for being here by the way uh, so um, you mentioned at multiple points in your career having people tell you that you couldn't do something because you, you cut promos so you can't do long form and you, you cut docs so you can't do narrative. Uh, I, and my question is, what made you keep trying to do those things that people told you you couldn't do? Because I knew they were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it just it just seems so ridiculous to me. I mean, for somebody to tell someone who's been cutting documentaries that they can't cut features, I I had never cut a feature, so I didn't know. But I did know that with features, everything was planned out. And with documentaries, you were kind of making it from scratch. So I couldn't imagine that I couldn't do um, narrative, you know, instead of, and so, it's interesting though because when I started actually cutting features, it wasn't it wasn't totally that way. There was a big learning curve, and um, luckily the director was in India, and I got to learn while she was away. <laughs> but um, but it, you know if you're an editor, you're an editor, and you if you don't know how to do it, or if you if you're you know stuck on something, you'll figure it out, and it, it, that's what it's all about is figuring out how to make the story and. I find in um, in narrative where so many directors are are treating them almost like documentaries because they'll shoot something and they don't have what they haven't gotten what it takes to to actually make what they want. So you have to treat it like a, do a documentary. I mean, the number of times that I've used footage before the slate mm -hmm. or after, you know, it. It's it is just incredible, and if I didn't have that footage, you know, when the actors were just standing around before the director, you know, before they started shooting, the scene wouldn't have been, you know, what it was. So I kind of treat everything like that's what it, you know, what I was saying when I said I I kind of ignore the idea of circle takes. I look at them only to try and figure out what the director was thinking and what what they're going for. Because I figure, okay, there's something in this circle take that made them like it. So, you know, let's try and figure that out. And then, you know, with all of the other takes together, we'll improve upon that. And, you know, that's the problem with these days not being able to sit through dailies with a director. I was lucky enough to be able to do that with um, Spike Lee because we were cutting on film. And it, it was just so great to have him sitting there and saying, I like this. I like using. I want to use that over here. And he never 
actually said, you have to do this, but you actually knew what he was thinking. So you had somewhere to begin. And these days you don't have anywhere to begin. You know, a lot of the directors don't even want to talk to you until they finish shooting. And in television, definitely, it's, you know, it's crazy. You have no idea. So um, does that answer your question? The, uh, the biggest bit of skepticism like that that I had was actually going from was being able to do commercials. People thought this a feature guy can't do commercials, and it was the, sort of the break I got in commercials was after Sense and Sensibility, somebody th thought they would take a chance on me because I had the storytelling ability to do their 30-second jelly commercial. It's like, I, I don't understand the reasoning at all, but, uh, but it went fine. I, I have um, one, one thing to say about that. Um, in television now, they, they make the editors do the next, not the next week on, the previously ons for their shows. And although I came out of promos, and that's what I did for a long time, I find that to be the most difficult part of my job is doing those things because I've cut the entire show and to, j to chop it up in that way <laughs> just makes me crazy. <laughs> uh, another, another question. Is anybody uh, right there? novice to this field, but in the last few months I considered funding the uh, production of a documentary on a music, a classical music uh, um, story that's going on in Europe that I'm involved in. And I interviewed a number of um, uh, people in the camera and film industry, and all of them had universally the same message, don't bother. Because there seems to be an inverse relationship, and I may not be right about this, between the voracious need for content at the cable and internet streaming companies and the willingness to take them in. That, that is documentaries. They'll take in storylines, feature films, and, and so on. But if you go to a network, whether it's PBS or Netflix or Showtime, with a documentary, they shut down. They have, it's almost impossible to sell them off. So I was completely discouraged and completely surprised that this inverse relationship exists. So. I'm probably not gonna, probably not gonna do it. So, is it true, in your experience, that this inverse relationship exists, where there's a need for content, but the networks are really not interested in buying it? If so, why is that? This is only in, in the area of documentaries I'm referring to. I think that may have been um, in the past, but I I think now there are so many cable networks that are only documentaries that. I would imagine there would be more of a chance, more of a, a spot for your piece, um, because there are there are just so many places for you know specifically for documentaries to be shown. Yeah, I would say the same thing. I, you know, I mean, Netflix—they produce documentaries, they bankroll documentaries that they just premiered the Liz Garbus's documentary on Nina Simone. And they bankrolled that. They paid that. They paid for that. I think it depends on what your story is. I mean, it's always about the story. HBO and Showtime and National Geographic and Discovery, they're all, they're all still looking for documentaries. But it always is, again, about how you're pitching the story. Al Jazeera 
it's always about what you're, how you're pitching the story. So maybe you're not pitching the story right because they're still looking for them. And there's money out there. It depends on your budget. depends on the storyline. You know, that's what you need to think about because there's definitely people who are going to look for documentaries in the cable world and public television too. Ben, do you want to just jump down here so we can... I'm going to bring it up, boys. Do you think when working in between these two mediums that you actually evaluate footage when you see it differently? In your first look at footage, are you, are you sifting through with a different eye? Sure. I mean, uh, you mean narrative footage versus... Yeah. I mean, there are certain things like, do I believe that? Is that compelling in some way uh sure in a in a narrative i mean those are the same but in a narrative you know i'm worried about was that dolly move smooth is the lighting best in this take or that take you know the one thing about uh narratives is i have 14 line readings from the same actor doing the same line that doesn't happen in documentary so it's it's a very different set of variables uh you know in in documentaries, you're often trying to make scenes work out of uh, out of bits and pieces of things, and audiences understand that. But often in a narrative, things really need to be smooth and clean, depending on the film. Um, so there's a lot of technical th the technical requirements are often very very different. So um, yeah, again, it depends on the requirements of the piece. When I was doing you know, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. There were some martial arts thing. I would have 48 takes of some little thing with a, you know, a very precise focus pull and a little piece of action that has to happen, and you know, how you evaluate that is completely different from how you evaluate somebody telling a story about the, in a documentary about how they overcame addiction. You know, they're just two completely different things. So you just have to see what what's needed for this piece. And that's what that's what's what you're evaluating. And there's a big overlap between um, narrative and documentary, but there's often, often on, especially on technical levels, they're often wildly different. I'll give you a great example. If you go back and you watch Unzipped, that Alan worked on, the opening sequence of Unzipped with Isaac walking to the store to check the, the you remember when the opening sequence of Unzipped, the shooting was crappy. It's just crappy shooting. It was black and white. It looked terrible to me. But there's moments in there that he's so compelling. He's so engaged. I said, man, what a great way to start a film. And then there's sequences there, like the whole sequence that was cut with the dog and Earth the Kid and the fashion show. It's all little pieces. But they put it together in such a way you said, man, what great filmmaking. You know, The shooting's not great, but, the, the, but the, what's inside that material is fantastic. The big challenge when you're editing a documentary, particularly a verite documentary, is that you can't ever say, this, this shooting's so bad I can't use it. That's, your big, that's the biggest mistake you can have as an editor. You have to be able to say anything and say, I can make something out of this. And you watch, you watch Unzip or you watch, um, um, what's his name, documentary about Chet Baker, Let's Get Lost. It's just, it's a beautiful mosaic, man. Beautiful mosaic. It's a different kind of style. It's what, 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 what Tim is saying, when you're looking at a feature film, you know, when we used to screen these dailies with Spike, we'd be looking at, is the dolly move working? You're right. Is the lighting right? Oh, is the, sh is the thing in focus? I don't worry about focus so much in documentary if the thing in this, if what's in the frame is engaging. 
You also have, um, I find, it, when I first started out in narrative, I would ignore the script. I would just watch the dailies as if there wasn't a script. I had read the script, but we were onto something new. We were we were shooting now, so I didn't have to read the script. And time after time, the director would say, "Oh, why why did you use that line? The actor was just ad libbing. That's that's not even the line that's supposed to be in there." And I used the line because I thought it it worked better. But I what I was missing was that that you know they really wanted the line that was written on the page. And sometimes you can get away with doing that, and sometimes you can't. So, you know, I've learned over the years that I have to, I still do it that way, but after I finish cutting a scene, I go back and check and make sure I have all the right lines in there. <laughs> That made me think of a question. Um, when you do something totally unexpected, do you tell the director beforehand or just show them and hope for the best? I'm always stuck in that place. Uh, it depends on the director and depends on your relationship with the director. Um, and I probably shouldn't tell any stories about that. I have, I have one good one, but I should keep it to myself. Um, yeah, sometimes I'll say, no, I just want you to watch this. Just watch this. And, you know, partway through, they'll start to go, ah, and I'll say, just wait. Mm -hmm. But you, know, you have to have a relationship where you can do that. Uh, and sometimes uh, I've been surprised by directors being remarkably open or even excited about something that they had never, never thought of or never imagined with the scene. Uh, but you have to be a little careful with that. And you can do something that they absolutely hate. So you better have a relationship with them where they can say, oh, I hate that. That's awful. And you joke about it and then move on. Right. And just to follow up, I mean, in documentary, it's almost always the case that the director won't know exactly what they're going to see. Um, whereas in fiction, with a script, you might have less of that. Yeah, I mean, with a with a documentary, if it's, you know, if they're not giving you a paper cut, if they're giving you, they're saying here, do this and figure it out. Yeah, they expect to be, they're hoping to be surprised and delighted by something they hadn't expected. That's much less the case in a, in a, in a narrative. Anyone else? Uh, right here. Yeah, uh, Craig, when you were uh, mentioning early in your career that you initially didn't want to do documentaries because uh, that was more about imparting facts as opposed to story and then later on you sort of found that they were closer but it occurred to me that I guess as a as a, a matter of curiosity perhaps documentaries were a little different in the 60s and 70s Definitely. in terms of of news and you know real direct cinema or what else whatever you want to call it and perhaps they've gotten a little closer and that's made moving between the two back and forth a little easier or how, how has that evolved? Well, I think say? stylistically, you know, we're talking uh, 70s and 80s uh, and uh, most of the documentaries at that point were narrative heavy, uh, as except for Wiseman's Titicut Follies, which puts you right in the middle of this ugliness. Uh, and that, I think that's evolved, I think so. Yeah, but that, how I felt then was basically because of the way things were. I was more excited with the narrative lines. Uh, and, but 
today it's all you know it's much more much more interesting and there's a wider much wider latitude in terms of experiencing emotions and uh infor- the kind of information and how you get it you know uh i'm just you know i mean i'm just things you know they they have a they have I'm sorry they have a way of happening you know, like today, every time I'm watching something, I'm waiting, I'm sitting there waiting for the drone shot. You know, it's so overused. I mean, oh, there, there it is. Okay. You know. It's just so stylistically, yeah, it, it was different, and that my attitude was based on that. Um, let's take two more, if there are two more. Anybody else have a question? Or there's one more. Okay, that'll be our last one. There you go. Well, it's a, a lot of a lot of features, a lot of what the assistant needs to do. There's a lot of stuff that is intensely technical, um, much more so than than when I was starting out. And the assistants have to, all kinds of data management, all that kind of stuff to do, uh, which are much more complicated than I think what most films did 10, 20 years ago. Um, just keeping up with the 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 technological demands can become a huge part of the assistant's job. So there's that. That may not be the most rewarding part of the job, but that's actually, if you screw that up, it'll cost the film millions of dollars. So you need to be really good at that kind of stuff. And then there's the danger. You become really good at that, and, oh, that's I know this guy. He's a technical genius. you got to hire him for that. You know, uh, you know if, you, if that's what you need on your film, hire that guy. And so, again, you get kind of pigeonholed into being really strong technically, and maybe that's not what you actually want to do. Um, but if you're not really strong technical, technically, sometimes it's hard to, to get those jobs on the good features. So that's a, that's a, a thing that is difficult to balance that I think some assistants kind of get stuck in. If you're not good, strong technically, you don't get those jobs, but if you are, you get, if you're so good at it, it's hard to then say, okay, I'm not going to do that now. I'm going to cut. Um, I think I know I've known a number of people who have been sort of stuck in that bind. Let me just add one thing. One of the lessons I learned is that you have to ask. Um, I remember I was working I was working with uh, Herb Gardner on uh, this children's television show called Free to Be You and Me. This is years ago, and we we're cutting a scene with Dustin Hoffman, and I worked with him, and we had a very good relationship, and then. Uh, uh, about four months later, he called me, and he was he was uh, his, he was going with Marlo Thomas at the time, and she was doing a TV movie of the week. And he called me to say, Marlo wants to know if you're interested in doing the TV movie. Now, in the meantime, I had read that Herb was doing a picture for Paramount uh, called Thieves, and he's asking me if I want to work with Marlo. And I know we had a good relationship. And what I did was I, I said to Herb, I said, Herb, I hear you're doing a movie for Paramount. He goes, yes, that's correct. I said, how could you do it without me? <laughs> he said, you're right. And I, 
and I got my first movie, you have to ask. You can be as technically proficient in everything, but if you don't start asking and letting people know what you want to do, uh, you're going to end up where you know, Tim's talking about. One last question. There you go. Uh, just in talking about the loss of uh, an assistant being able to be in the room often uh, with the editor, if you don't have those situations, other than just finding shorts to cut or whatever, is there anything else you suggest to fill that sort of gap? Cut everything you can get your hands on. Yeah, it, it's interesting how many assistants I've had who have, you know, there are certainly time periods of time where the assistant has nothing to do maybe the dailies haven't shown up yet and and so they're just sitting around for a couple of hours and you know I there are people I know um, who really want to be editors and I have never seen them cut a scene and I always when the assistant comes I'm like you know if you ever have any free time you should I know you want to be an editor. You should, you know, cut some scenes and and show them to me, and I'll work on them with you just so that they can get experience. And so many people just won't do that, and I and I'm shocked. So um, yeah, just whatever you can get your hands on, cut it. And if you're working as an assistant, you're going to have real stuff. It's not going to be some, you know, something that that you know has been cut and recut at, at, at college that, you know, I don't even know where they get most of that footage, but <laughs> it's pretty deadly. But yeah, if you're working on a feature, there's dailies coming in every day, you know, fresh professionally cut dailies. And, you know, ask the editor, you mind if I, you know, as, as long as I get my other work done, you mind if I take a whack at cutting the scene? And nobody's going to say no. I mean, that would be kind of strange. And I've had assistants do that, and they come up with something I like, and so I take it. I say, yeah, I'm, I'm using that, and uh, now it's mine. So that, that's, that's always a good thing. And uh, the other thing about cutting everything you can, you know, I did all kinds of things before I really got started. And that's good because you're building up material and you're learning techniques, but you're also meeting people because people is how you get those other jobs. You know, and it's... You know, I met Ang Lee because I was a friend of mine, knew somebody, uh, a friend of mine met somebody in an animation house, and so they invited me to dinner, and her husband was cutting something, and then a location manager on that movie was then producing a movie, and and those that's what led me to, to Ang Lee. It's these people who you meet, even if that project is terrible and nobody's going to see it, if you show up and you're interested and you're, you know, impressing everyone with being the kind of person who they could stand being in a room with and maybe working with again. Because you know, when I was hiring early, my early assistants, we weren't paying any money. I couldn't hire anybody with any experience. So I hired people who seemed smart and pleasant, who I could stand to be in a room with. And you know, my first assistant, the fr assistant I had on Ang Lee's first two features, she's been nominated for an Oscar now. She's cut, uh, it's Pam Martin, she's cut a, a bunch of films. I mean, I have, depending on how you count, seven or eight or nine former assistants who are now editors. Um, and I hired, the, especially early on, I hired them because they seemed like pleasant people, not because they had this great body of work. So, you know, do as much as you can because you never know who the person on this lousy thing is going to then go do something else and say, oh, I know a guy who can help out with that and bring you onto that. Wonderful. Um, 
please let's give a hand to all our panelists. Thank you so much. And um, thank you to everyone for coming. We'll open the doors and enjoy some uh, food and drink outside. Thank you.